This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to download our free audiobooks. The title of this book is Don't Talk to the Police, The Ultimate American Weapon, A Common Lawyer Comments, Copyright 2010, Written by Brent Allen Winters. Visit commonlawyer.com for more information. Appendices Appendix 1. State Power versus Spouses and Friends In our day of increasing bureaucratic power, it is risky to rely on the once strong spousal privilege. The right to bar one's spouse's testimony, revealing one's incriminating words. In all events, even though the accused may be able to bar his spouse's testimony of confidential communication from being set before the jury, once his wife has revealed her husband's words to a policeman or government agent, the cat is out of the bag. Having this additional information will often lead a prosecutor to other facts that he can twist against the accused. Even though an accused may be able to bar his spouse from revealing on the witness stand confidential words they had spoken between them, a policeman or government agent can still follow up on a comment of one's spouse that creates suspicion of a crime. Even though many so-called crimes are no crimes at all, but crimes only by legislative decree. Conversations with friends who happen to be government agents or employees are always dangerous. Your commenter once met a federal prisoner who, in the course of his business, had discovered his possible violation of a federal criminal statute. He was a church-going, happily married husband with three young girls, wanting to make quick correction of any possible violation of law and to make full disclosure to any he thought may have jurisdiction. He asked one of his fellow churchgoers and closest friend, who was also an FBI agent, whom he should contact to begin the process of disclosure. This government agent, however, promptly reported this sincere man's questions to his superiors. And because his question amounted to a confession in the eyes of the criminal law industry's bureaucracy, any attempt to convince a jury in a criminal trial of his lack of criminal intent was rendered futile. Twisting his sincere inquiring words against him, federal prosecutors got him taken from his family and friends and held in federal prison just short of five years. Appendix 2 Our Constitution A Paper Barrier Paper rights are worth, when threatened, just what some lawyer makes them worth. The whole aim of our Constitution is to protect your unchanging rights against the ever-shifting sands of government, blown about by fickle majorities, overblown bureaucrats, and overrated officeholders. Thus, our Constitution sets limits for government. But being mere limits written on paper, our Constitution is limited in what it can do. These limits for government inspire people to insist upon them. However, being written on paper will never force a government employee to respect them. Simply put, our Constitution's framers did not fix your rights in ink onto paper, but God bound them up into you. Your rights are God's authority to limit man's government from trespassing upon God's. God's authority entrusted to you, because the Creator has inextricably interwoven rights into the fabric of your heart, soul, mind, and body. They are one with you. Thus, any government employee's act in disregard of your rights 
is in criminal contempt of the God that gave them. Common law responds to truth best when the staying power of conviction drives the aggrieved. Thus, constitutional authority limits government power only as the conviction of the aggrieved drives him to insist that government observe that authority. I learned passion is blind to barriers. While growing up, I tended daily and became familiar with cattle and hogs, horses, goats, and chickens. My grandfather and father let, handled, and hauled bulls. From this I learned the dangers of cattle. When a child, I also learned to respect the horse's kick, the billy's horns, and the rooster's spurs. For raw aggression, however, few domestic animals match an old sow on the scrap to defend her piglets. Once she believes one of her litter is in danger, she alters from a relaxed rooter into an instant, white-hot and wild, wakened female warring as for her child. Contrary to appearances, sows are mobile and agile, especially when incited to be hostile. Our sows farrowed on the sand hills north of the house. Hogs are born to root their way through life. Their nature demands it. Their life depends on it. As goes the saying, root, hog, or die. So goes the life of the hog. Dad said that if a pig ever rooted his nose through a hole under the fence, he would get his whole body through and out of the hog lot. He was right. Our pigs were forever out. Men build fences horse high and bull strong, but a pig-tight fence is a stockman's cant. Early each morning I took our sheepdogs, old laid and frisk, and ran the pigs down, one by one, and put them back in the lot. Some of these pigs pushed fifty pounds, big enough to outrun a man, but in spite of their size, still unweaned. Without our dog's help, I could never catch them. As I gave chase, Lady and Frisk hung on to their ears, frustrating their flight, allowing me to close in. Once close enough, I dived for the pig's hind legs. After catching his legs, I swung the pig over the gate and into the pen in such a way as to let the rascal down easy, turning loose of his hind legs. After getting all the pigs back in, I plugged the holes under the fence by tying old wooden rails and stray timbers along the fence's bottom, using strands of baling wire that we had expended feeding the cattle during the past winter and had hung about on the fences and fence posts, handy for such use. Early one August morning, I rolled out of bed, pulled on my bib overalls with no shirt, and slipped on a pair of flip-flop sandals. It was among the most humid and hottest dog days of a summer. 100 degrees and 100% humidity at sunup. I left the house for the sow pens out north on the sand hills, figuring to get all the pigs back in and back to the house in 30 minutes, when breakfast would be ready. Lady and Frisk and I went to work. I soon caught a pig, grabbing his hind legs just as he rounded the outside of a fence corner. In his desperation to shake the dogs loose from worrying his ears, while making the turn, his legs tangled just long enough for me to get the advantage diving for his hind legs at the right moment. I caught hold and held fast as the centrifugal force of rounding the outside of the fence corner at a good clip rolled us both into the horse weeds. Holding fast the hog's hind legs, with both hands, with his front legs still on the ground, allowed me to guide him like a wheelbarrow, but with one difference. Unlike the handles of a wheelbarrow, the pig's legs agitated unending jackhammer-like. In addition, the pig was screaming up a storm, as I moved him into position in order to swing him around and in an upward motion to clear the four-foot gate, I glanced across the lot at a troubled sow, her soul as agitated as the pig's legs. 
Pushing 400 pounds, she stood sideways with her head turned toward me. Violent snorts erupted from deep within her innards. With each snort came a bouncing upheaval of her whole body, from her engorged udder up to her high back. In a glance, I took quick account of facts and calculated that she was loaded and cocked, ready to rescue her pig. Being a Yorkshire, the normal redness of her engorged udders had turned abnormally white. Dad had told me, and narrow escapes had taught me, that just before a nursing sow attacks, her muscles make ready for the demands of battle by pulling the blood from her udder, causing it to go pale. In short, the pig's screaming had put his mother on the scrap. I, nonetheless, remained unalarmed because a four-foot-high steel gate stood between her and me. Without fear, and leaning back on both heels in order to balance my weight against the rotation of the pig's weight, I made ready to swing her screaming juvenile delinquent up and over the gate. By this time, however, his mother was making a beeline for me at full tilt. Her mouth was wide open. I saw down her throat as she closed the distance. But having seen all of this before, I stayed unconcerned. The gate that stood between her and me was made of the best steel, the sturdiest gate-building material available in that part of the country. Three-eighths-inch oil well sucker rods. Moreover, to bolster my confidence in its strength, I had fashioned and welded the gate together myself. Possessed of cocksure satisfaction born of the self-confidence of experience, I pictured the old girl crashing into that gate, as I had seen untold times before. While I watched in calm safety within only a few feet of her fierce resolve to rip me open, I had just begun to swing the pig up when, to my horror, two jumps from the gate, the old gal went airborne. Straightway that sow's high-flying agility brought low my trust in my gate. It became no more than a dreamer's wall of imagination. I knew I was worsted. All of a sudden, she was at my shoulder. The force of speed, weight, momentum, and gravity all combined in her favor. All that stood between us, a cubic foot of hot, humid air. In that eerie moment, while time stood still, we both knew she had the drop on me. No time to dodge, much less run. By instant, reckless instinct, I took the only evasive action allowed. In one motion, pitching the pig loose, I fell backward and tumbled away. Clearing the gate clean, her front toes touched down with the force of four hundred pork pounds of blind aggression. Her open jaws slammed into her pig broadside at his ribcage. Now a sacrifice successfully offered for my life. She chomped down on him a couple of times before gaining her senses and turning him loose. Her misguided attack, leaving only a few holes in his tough hide. Sprawling backwards, I had kept tumbling, trying to salvage my hide. By the time I had unscrambled my legs, gathered them under me, and looked back at the sow, her burst of force now spent, she stood alert with her head up, as though surveying the effect of her savage charge grunting and munching on one of my flip-flop sandals that hung from her mouth. In my hurry to get clear, one foot had left behind a sandal. I had fashioned that gate with care, but had relied on the skill of my mind and hands to no avail. My gate kept the sow in only until her passions took hold. That which experience and sense told me will never happen did happen. The passions of men in government, coupled with natural ambition, ever impel them to transgress constitutional limits for government. The framers hammered out, forged, 
and fashioned our Constitution with great care, according to their convictions and those of their fellow Americans. It is likely the finest summation of common law government principles ever penned. Nevertheless, without present and individual understanding of its unwritten common law foundations, our Constitution remains a mere fence of parchment, waiting to be punched through or jumped over. As my gate, which I had framed and fashioned to keep unruly sows in, so also our Constitution is by the people and framed with intent to keep lawless government penned in. However, to trust our Constitution and the wisdom of the men that drafted it while ignoring the author of the laws of nature and of nature's God, somewhat, as I trusted my gate, is dangersome. Man is a wholly dependent creature. All that he has or hopes to have and enjoy, he must derive from the God that made him, gave him law, and even any pluck he can draw on to insist upon its keeping. If, therefore, one yearns for right government, one must never trust man, but rather trust God to instill the steadfastness necessary to keep government within the boundaries of our Constitution. Remember, our national motto is not, we trust in our Constitution, but instead, in God we trust. Thus, we are never to trust those in government to confine their activities within constitutional bounds. They neither have done so, nor will they do so. Rather, each person is to keep the common law principles of our Constitution well-tended in his mind, while trusting God to tame his passions and frustrate misguided passions in others. Indeed, the passions of men are akin to those of my old sow. Passion seeks its own goal, remaining blind to all else, including the rights of God and of others. As my well-built four-foot steel gate failed to restrain the passions of the sow, and as a locked door will fail to restrain the men enslaved to dishonest character, our Constitution will restrain only the person whose lusts have not enslaved him. Neither reason nor education alone, nor both together, will detour those whose misguided passions drive their ambition. Indeed, once the natural impulses of the sow overwhelmed her, no method of keeping her from jumping my gate remained. Only having changed her nature beforehand could have stopped her, which was no more possible than removing her impulse to root and wallow. Blinded by her passions at the height of her aggression, she was not even to distinguish me from the pig she wanted to protect. Likewise, once the unbridled impulses of the government employee, whether officer, magistrate, or judge, overwhelm him, no method remains to keep him from leaping over, going around, or rooting his nose through our Constitution, save the intervention of God by either changing his nature or by frustrating his passions. Bottom line. In order to keep government employees from violating constitutional limits, the common law presupposes a critical mass of disciplined individuals, habituated to its fundamental mindset and methods. Scripture puts this responsibility on each man and woman. In fact, constitutional law without the common law traditions drains our constitution of its lifeblood and puts a wishbone for its backbone. Appendix 2. The Limits of Government Authority By what standard is one to know whether an act of government is lawful? One can find the answer by first recognizing that God, the spring of all authority or right, bestows his authority upon each member of Adam's race, crowning him with lordship over the earth. Moreover, 
God will never recall these gifts and callings. God is no Indian giver. See Romans 11.25. In fact, the Creator's grant of lordship authority over the earth to Adam's race is the crowning event of all creation. See Genesis 1.26 and Psalm 8.5. The coming together of the authority, rights of individuals, becomes the rights and freedoms of the people, who then grant a measure of this authority to government to exercise its lawful powers, for example, the people of the United States, by the preamble of our Constitution, restrict government power to six purposes, then the body of our Constitution, by confining all government activity to the powers it lists, further delimits the people's grant of authority to government. Indeed, personal authority direct from God is freedom, the right to exercise personal power. Therefore, says John Quincy Adams, the country that enjoys the most freedom must necessarily be the country with the most free people. In short, the freedom of a country grows with the multiplication of its freemanship. The more free men, the more freedom. All government right, authority, and jurisdiction derive from the governed, but the governed can give to government only that which they possess. Bottom line, it is impossible to give to government the right to do anything that you do not yourself have. If, therefore, you could not rightfully do that which the government is doing if there were no government, then the government has not the right. Simply put, you cannot impart to government that which you do not possess. The application of this constitutional principle is profound. The power of its application is the basis of our freedom and tranquility. For example, if you, or you and your friends, could have never had the right to counterfeit money by printing fake $20 bills, then it follows that government could never get such a right from you or from the people to do such a lawless thing. For example, print worthless paper and call it money. Indeed, if none of the people, or any combination thereof, have such a right, neither does their government. Thus, is the test for finding the limits of lawful government powers. In sum, no person, in government or out, has any right to do wrong. Appendix 3 Police State Culture There is no error so monstrous that it fails to find defenders among the ablest men. If there is any presumption, it is against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. The lessons of law and government are deposited by the streams of history, like the grains of gold in the sands of a river, and the knowledge of the past, the record of truths revealed by experience is eminently practical as an instrument of action and a power that goes to making the future. Over the past 175 years, Americans have gone from refusing to allow policemen to tote guns to not only allowing them to carry firearms, but, in addition, tolerating mere petty bureaucrats to bear concealed weapons. In fact, Government employees from IRS agents to BLM bureaucrats now pack heat. Consider further, federal prison guards have gone from dressing in pressed shirts and ties to donning commando-style uniforms and gear. Policemen have exchanged their dress shoes and creased dress trousers for the commando's combat boots and bloused fatigues. Nowadays, even rural county court bailiffs 
look more like they are outfitted for a clandestine assassination raid behind enemy lines than they are to maintain order in a county court. Such ill-advised choices foster in government employees, as well as in the eyes of others, a false and wrong view of themselves and their jobs, encouraging lack of professional restraint on their part, while sending an unnecessary message of hostility toward those who pay and keep them. Those keeping government employees in regular pay includes everybody. It is impossible to be alive in America and not pay taxes. In fact, almost every time money changes hands, a tax is owed. But further, tax liability rolls downhill to rest upon those least able to shoulder their burden. Merchants and service providers pass the liability along by higher prices. Simply put, combat garb reveals a policy of intimidation, domination, and ready violence, meant to incite fear with its ever-present companion erratic behavior, which in turn gives policemen and government agents further excuse for violence. By contrast, a pressed shirt and tie, shine dress shoes, increased trousers invite from others sincere respect with its companion thoughtful behavior. The results of this policy of bullying have been predictable and are now upon us. America jails per capita more of its own than any country in the world, including communist China. The percentage of a people jailed is proportional to the number of crimes, so-called, invented by legislative fiat. For example, the number of federal prisoners, 24,360 in 1940, 24,257 in 1980, times more than two equals 60,000 in 1990, times more than two equals 134,000 1999, times two equals 268,000 in 2012. Such concentrated monopoly of domestic force is costly, not only in dollars, but also in destruction of freedom of association. For example, freedom to not only choose relationships, such as in business, but also to nurture and keep them, such as in families. It is self-evident that the warehousing of non-dangerous men, and increasingly women, in prisons entirely bars or strains and then snaps the ties of otherwise productive relationships, from religion and family to business and government. The criminal law industry now wages war against our freedom of association, the fundamental engine from which all other rights get meaning, and out of which wealth, untold, has overflowed our country. What about this increasingly bureaucratic, gun-toting creature of the powers that be called policeman and agent? Is he to blame for the police state of life in which he, we increasingly live? To be sure, no one has a right to do wrong. To the extent that a policeman or government agent is misguided in having chosen to do the unlawful bidding of his superiors, substituting the mind and will of others for his own good sense, and thereby exercising unlawful force against his own people, he has allowed himself to become a part of the problem, a cog in the evil empire's machine against your freedoms. Our common law, says Justice Koch, is against monopolies, and this includes any monopoly of force and violence. Why? Because every monopoly, whether of the economic power of trade or the raw power of military-like force, says Koch, can only exist by government force in restraint of individual freedom. This stands not only to reason, but is also according to all the lessons that may be gleaned from history. Bottom line, your freedom depends not only upon the absence of government enforced being the only possible kind, 
monopolies of private trade, but also the absence of purely government monopolies such as those of raw force. Our common law tradition, the backbone and lifeblood of our Constitution, is intolerant of professional bureaucrats, law enforcement agents and prosecutors, which are all part and parcel of the civil law tradition, the foe and antagonist of common law. In fact, professional prosecutors and armed police were never part of the American colonists' world. And even for decades after American independence from Britain, see Brent Allen Winters, The Declaration of Independence and Constitution, A Common Lawyer Comments, U.S. Constitution, Amendment 2, and CMT, 2010. In England, professional prosecutors are still scarce. Until recent times, London's bobbies remained unarmed. In New England, armed police were uncommon until at least 1825. Simply put, the colonial's common law way of life distrusted government employees with guns, requiring instead that the people, those independent from government, arm themselves.